Why don't you stand and we'll read the scriptures together. Uh, we are in Psalm 3. So far, I'm just going through the Psalms. We've done the, uh, the Wisdom Psalm. We've done the Regal Psalm, Psalm 2. And tonight is a, it's kind of a, a mixture of a, a praise and lament psalm. Rather, lament first and then praise, Psalm chapter 3. And uh, we'll, we'll deal with this one a little bit different tonight since it has a lot of background in the narrative of Scripture. Another Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son, he said, Lord, how they've increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God, Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And Lord, as we sang tonight in that hymn, unless our hearts are tethered to your courts, they will not find their way home. Unless we're sealed by your spirit, Lord, there's no hope for us. So, Lord, we thank you that in your, in your severe kindness that you've called us, you've saved us, you've redeemed us. And, Lord, we thank you tonight for the history of your word, your history, and uh, the truth of it, the encouragement in it. And I just pray that as we continue to look at the Psalms of David and his experience, really, in many ways, of a troubled life, that we would experience you in the midst of it and that like David we would learn to trust you and cry out to you when life hurts but also Lord when life is good that we would find ourselves praising you and rejoicing for your kindness Lord and Lord we we thank you that we've come back to this place together in spite of all that's happened and, and we thank you that you've preserved the life of your people and Lord, I pray that you just continue to abide with those that are not well. And Lord, those who still are just lingering, uh, or rather the, the, the effects of the virus is lingering, uh, that you just help them to recover. And Lord, those that are just sick, we just pray that you would be their company, that you'd sustain them. Lord, we thank you for uh, Frank and Juan. Lord, we thank you that you preserve their lives in that explosion, and that things are far better uh, than we had originally even thought. And we pray that their bodies would continue to heal and that you would just restore and refresh them. Lord, bring them back to us, we pray quickly. And um, yeah, Lord, we also praise you in regard to Dana Murphy, who we, um, we weren't certain at all um, that he was going to make it, but he's here. And uh, it's a testimony of your goodness, and we thank you. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay, reset the system.
We're going to have a sila. A long pause. Enjoyed the weather? It wasn't too hot? Well, you know, what I, I love the spring here. I think Washington, for a brief time, turns into a decent place to live. But I just I love watching my fruit develop. Uh, my grapes and my Rainier cherries and the blueberries, everything. I just love that. And then, of course, the cherries come first, and then I glut myself on those. Just, just to the edge threshold of regret, but not quite beyond that. And then the, the blueberries come, and then the apples come, and then the, the grapes come. And, and then I don't eat fruit again for nine months. So, <laughs> but anyway, you, you have the text before you there. We read it. And as the, the superscription says, David wrote this during his flight from Absalom. And, uh, and so therefore, this particular psalm has definite context. Many of them, uh, scholars, uh, wrestle a lot trying to figure out where David was, when he wrote it, and under what circumstances he wrote uh, various psalms. And, uh, but this one, there's no guessing. It's there in the text for us. And so we have the context for us in 2 Samuel chapter 13 through 19. And it really is essential to understanding uh, much that's in here. And I'm sure that you've read the, the story before, but if you're like me, you could use some, a little bit more review on some of the details. Um, as I'm certain that you know, the story of Absalom is one of the, I think, the greatest tragedies in all of the scriptures. He was, um, he was the third son of King David, uh, the daughter of Maaka, uh, who was the daughter of Talmai, the king of Jeshur. We find that in 2 Samuel 3.3, and it comes full circle in the story again. But Absalom himself, he doesn't actually enter the narrative until we have that tragic story in 2 Samuel chapter 13, where his, his lovely sister, the text says Tamar, was raped by their half-brother, Amnon. And Amnon happens to be the firstborn of David. He really was heir to the throne. Now the story in the text doesn't share what was done to Amnon. And when you read it, you think it, especially if it's the first time you read it, you think at any moment the, the hammer is going to fall on Amnon for this serious crime that he committed. But nothing is said in the text as far as what was done to him legally. Uh, it only says that David was very angry when he heard about what happened. But you see, according to the law, Amnon committed at least, at least one capital crime, uh, possibly two. Uh, according to Leviticus 18, 11, and 29, incest was a capital offense in, in Israel. And rape uh, in Deuteronomy 22, 25 through 27. But there's this I think, sad uh, pause in there, and, and, and then nothing is really done, but you're waiting for it. And, and then Absalom, the sister of Tamar, when he discovered what had happened, he, he goes to his sister, and he said to her, Amnon is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. But Absalom took it to heart. He did, and it festered there for two years until Absalom got his revenge by having Amnon murdered. And then immediately after he had his brother murdered, he fled to his grandfather, Talmai, the king of Jeshur, and he was there for three years. Now Jeshur is in the extreme north of Israel, 
Uh, it's a city just below Mount Hermon in the, 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 the Aram region, sort of a buffer between Israel and um, the real uh, Aramean territory. And then he's there for all that time, and through a series of interesting events, if you remember the story, it's by the craftiness of Joab. He's the general of David. And uh, through him, he gets permission for Absalom to return to Jerusalem. But then David uh, refuses to see him for two full years. So they've been apart for five years now, David and his, his son. And then the way that Absalom got an audience with the king was by having his servants burn the barley field of um, Joab uh, just to get his attention. It's all there in 2 Samuel 14. And so, of course, Joab then gets an audience uh, for uh, Absalom with his father. And then through all this, Absalom was received by the king, and he, over time, he begins to reestablish himself in Jerusalem as the king's son. And he's, he's starting to gather soldiers to himself, and he has chariots and horsemen. And as the story goes, Absalom was, he was cunning. He was cunning. And through flattery and deception, he began to draw the hearts of the people. And there's an interesting statement about him in 2 Samuel 14 and into uh, verses 25 and 26. He was praised in Israel as the most attractive person, saying he was flawless in appearance. You know, people are no different today. You know, both Life and People magazine do the same kind of ridiculous stuff. It's really good for the human soul. Uh, to help them in their vanity. And so with good looks, he would, what he would do is he would rise early in the morning and he would go down to one of the main gates of the city of Jerusalem. And what he was doing is he was being there looking as though he was in some official capacity. And as the people from all over the kingdom would come to Jerusalem to have their you know, legal matters settled, Absalom would meet them at the gate. He would welcome them with a kiss and tell them that no deputy of the king was available to meet with them to settle their affairs. And as he was saying that, he would assure them that if he were made a judge in all of the land, he would give justice to all of the people. I'm here for you, even though my father and his people are not. Now, it wasn't true that David and his elders were not available to the people, because in fact, the very way that Absalom got back to Israel was because a woman had gone to David and brought this bogus story to him, of course, and then somehow turned that on him so that he would let Absalom come back to the, to the city. So it, it's, it's all a lie. It's all deception to make David look bad, but to make Absalom look good. And so, of course, over time, as years went on, uh, word spread throughout all Israel that Absalom was somebody noble. He was somebody great. And 2 Samuel 15, 6 says that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Not as David won the hearts of the men of Israel so many years before. And it's very interesting uh, when you compare the, the two stories of David and Absalom. David under Saul, Absalom under his father. David was a good man that the people loved for good reasons. And Absalom was a bad man that people were deceived into admiring. He wanted the throne, but he had no intention of being worthy of it. 
The only way for him to get it, of course, was by taking it. And he was planning to do what his father was unwilling to do to Saul. Very strange. And David, as we know, he refused to kill Saul and take his throne because uh, he believed that Saul was God's anointed. And David, he wasn't simply waiting for God to establish him on the throne. He was running from Saul in the process. And he ran from him for years. He ran from him for years under the promise that the throne belonged to him. And he was unwilling to take action against the evil man who was Saul. But Absalom had it in his heart to steal, to kill and destroy. And so it was after a couple of years of playing on the people's affections, he went to David and he got leave to go to Hebron. Not to fulfill a vow, as he told David, but it was for the reason of treason. And as he left Jerusalem, what he did, because he was very shrewd, is he sent spies throughout all of the land of Israel. And what they were to do is at a certain time, they were to blow the trumpet and they were to declare Absalom as king. Now what that did was it, the, the, it made this whole declaration look very official in the eyes of the people. It, it looked as if David had given him approval for such a thing, that, that David had handed him the kingdom. Everybody thought that everything was on the up and up. 2 Samuel 15.11 says that, that even 200 men went with Absalom to Hebron and they had no idea what was going on. None. They apparently thought that David had given his blessing. And so Absalom, in the process of all this, he began with 200 men, but then he was able to essentially muster Israel to his aid. And then he returned to Jerusalem with the intent of purging Jerusalem of anybody that had loyalty to David. And of course, before he got there, David got wind of the insurrection. He fled the city uh, to the plains. And the text says that his purpose of fleeing the city was to divert the battle away from Jerusalem because of his care for the people there. David was quite the guy. And also, as David left the city, he was ascending the Mount of Olives. He was barefoot. He had his head covered. And it says that he wept the whole way. And then this takes us, of course, to Psalm 3. So David is there. He's in the, the plain of the wilderness. And he's gone to the other side of the Jordan in Mahanaim. And sometime during his stay there, he pens the words of Psalm 3, writing in the midst of his trouble. So David begins in verse 1 by lamenting those who trouble him and the many who have risen up against him. Now, when David writes this, it's not, it's not only that there are many that have risen up against him, and trouble him, it's, it's, I think more importantly to him, it's very specific people and people that have gone back now many years that have uh, troubled him and have gotten all of this brewing. Uh, even within, we would say, his own family. It began with Jonadab, who is David's nephew, the son of Shemiah. And he actually helped Amnon lure Tamar into this this sad story, 2 Samuel 13, 3. And then after Amnon was murdered, this Jonadab, he makes light of his death to David. It's a very interesting story, 2 Samuel 13, 32. And what has always interested me is that 
the man never comes up again in the narrative of Scripture. I've always wondered what God had done with him. Because see, everybody that cursed David in the process of all these events here, they all got whacked later. Every one of them. And, uh, but he's never mentioned. So I, I wonder if he had a special place in the heart of God for some retribution. And then, of course, there is Amnon, who really got the ball rolling on all of this. And he is to blame, really, for dividing the family through his wickedness. And, of course, then Absalom for murder, deceit, and treason. And what we didn't talk about is what goes on further in the narrative is Ahithophel, who was formerly David's trusted counselor, he betrays David and commits treason with Absalom. And of course, David, he's also very shrewd, and he plants Hushai, his friend, into the palace with Ahithophel. And he brings Ahithophel's counsel to nothing. And then the, the people... Uh, the council, the other, the, the, the men of, of Absalom, and they, they said that Hushai's counsel is better than Ahithophel. And this, he's the one to, to basically, um, he brings Absalom to his end through his counsel, just as David had uh, planted him there for. But then Ahithophel goes out and commits suicide because they re- rejected his counsel. And then you know the story, Shimei the Benjamite, as David is leaving, this man comes to an elevated place along the road, and he's throwing rocks at David. Imagine the audacity of this man. And he's kicking dust at him, and he's cursing him. And, and one of David's mighty men says, let me go rip off this dead dog's head. And David says, leave him to the Lord. He says, maybe the Lord sent him to do this to me. Of course, he's taken care of later. And then, of course, all the men who willingly conspired against him with Absalom, all these people, they trouble him. They've come against him. And then in verse 2, David says that there are many who say of me, there is no help for him from God. Now, the narrative, in the narrative, the last person that David heard from in that regard is Shimei, the Benjamite. And this is what he said. He said, the Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. 2 Samuel 16, 8. The the ignorance of Shimei is astounding to me. Where he was getting his information, uh, I, I have no idea. It must have been just the rumor mill or something. Because David did nothing but serve Saul. I mean, in all of Saul's trouble... Even after Saul had tried to kill David twice, David went and played the harp for him again. And every time he did it, we know he got spears thrown at him. He did nothing but fight Saul's battles. And though Saul hunted David, David spared his life on two occasions. And after Saul had perished, David cared for some within Saul's family, even though other parts of the family warred against him. It's crazy. It's crazy, Shimei ignorance. But it made no difference to David under the circumstances. He knew better. He knew that God was his helper. Now, before we leave the verse there, this is the first time in all of the Psalms that the word uh, Selah appears. Uh, You've read that. What in the world is that? Uh, Scholars today are still scratching their head a little bit and saying, what in the world is that? Uh, You look it up, you try to find definitions, and they're all over the map. Uh, the, the meaning of the word is not completely certain, 
but it does seem to indicate a, uh, some sort of pause, uh, either in the lyrical portion of the psalm or in the instrumental part, Selah. Uh, it may provide, uh, some think, a pause to consider what has just been said, okay, to ponder, to meditate on it. I don't know for sure. I, I, to me, it seems reasonable that it's some kind of pause. It's actually used three times in this psalm, 70 times throughout the psalms, and then we find it again in, in Habakkuk chapter 3 in his song. It's very interesting. But anyway, verse 3 and 4, in, in response to this whole thing, the trouble, the, those that have come against him, those that are saying of David that God is not with him, he says, but, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. So in this, the context of David's circumstances, which is, is terrible, um, this psalm is actually one of the most sure-footed in the, in the whole book, or in the, the book of Psalms. As we'll see later on, David often in the Psalms communicates great woes as if the world is coming to pieces and there's no hope on the horizon. You've probably read those, okay? But he always, of course, in the Psalms, he, regain, he regains his footing by the end, but we don't actually see that going on here. Now, I think it could be that at this stage in David's life, he is more advanced in years now, even though this is an early psalm, it's way out of chronology. It may be that at this point in David's life, he's experienced so much of God's faithfulness that he's better grounded and prepared for trouble in his life. He's not presumptuous, um, but confident in God's promises and, and because of God's past faithfulness. In these three verses, uh, David describes God as four things to him. He says, he's my shield, he's the lifter of my head, He's the one who hears me and the one who sustains me. Now, anybody can say that and anybody can sing that on a Sunday morning, a Thursday night, but only people that have experienced that can really say it. You know what I'm saying? And that's, that's David. That's David. You know, even though David is not currently standing secure behind the fortified walls of Jerusalem, he, he sees God as his shield. He's out in a field. He's out in the plain. There, there's not a more insecure place militarily. Okay? The elevated position is the safest place. He's in the lowest position in a plain. There's nothing to protect him, but he says, God is my shield, my protector, and he's the one who lifts up my head. He's the one that encourages me. He's the one that gives me courage uh, in the face of all of this. He also says that, that God gives ear to my cry. He's attentive in my plight. So the shield, the lifter of my head, and he's the one that listens. So important in troubles. But in all of this, what is most astounding, astounding to me is what David says in verse 5. David slept. Think about that for a little bit in the context of 2 Samuel 13 to 19. David says, I slept. Under, under these circumstances, your son, not just an enemy, your son, how well would you have slept, if at all? It's quite the statement, isn't it, that he slept. 
He's not just simply dealing with the threat of war. He's being hunted. He isn't just struggling with his son's youthful rebellion, of which some of you have and lost sleep over. It's full-on insurrection with an army that's after him. David's about to go to war with his own son, and yet he sleeps. And it's not because he's indifferent to his son's treason. It's not because he's you know, unaware of the consequences of war or what the kingdom may look like after insurrection. Kingdoms never look the same after insurrection. But it's simply because he says, God is my sustainer. In spite of all the stress and heartache, David is able to rest in the Lord and find sleep. Now, that has not always been the case for David when he's been in trouble. Okay? At another time in his life, things were very different. As he lamented, he said, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eyes, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Psalm 6, 6 through 7. Now, we don't know the, the backstory to Psalm chapter 6, but it seems to have come at an earlier time in David's life when his enemies, of course, were harassing him. Yeah. At that time, he wasn't just sleepless. He, was, he says, I was drenched in my tears. But in Psalm 3, I think we have later in life, we have a different David. We have a David that's been through it with people, with his enemies over and over and over again. He appears to be a man who's learned uh, to rest both in the promises and the sovereignty of God. So apparently those, for those who trust him, God is the ultimate sleep aid. He's better than NyQuil. That's miraculous. Okay. But I think that like David, we have to learn through experience that God not only has us and our circumstances and our children, okay, he has everything in the palm of his hand. That comes through experience. To be able to sleep knowing that God is all of those things. And then also, because God is all those things to David, he can say with confidence in verse 6, he says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around, though I'm surrounded by thousands and thousands of people. Just, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. And it's not that David wasn't sorrowful or hurt by his son's doings. We know that he was because David left the city weeping. So he's not indifferent, okay? And he'll weep again when Absalom is killed. It's just that David was not afraid of man. He didn't fear man or what man could do to him. David feared the Lord. Yeah. Now, it wasn't David's fear of God that, I'm sorry, it was David's fear of God that abolished his fear of man. You know, I always, I think frequently when I preach from the pulpit um, about issues that are difficult, uh, things I know that people will not want to hear. Um, I kind of feel like somebody bigger than me is standing behind me. And that that one is the one I need to fear rather than those before me. And yeah, I recently had to confront someone about an issue and I wasn't really certain what the consequences would be. I never really do know when I confront people. Uh, what's going to happen. Sometimes I have a good idea. Other times I'm completely clueless. And then as I began to weigh the outcome, a little fear began to settle in my heart as it has in the past. But as I prayed about it, the Lord comforted me with this reality that David has here. 
Fear me, he said, do what is right, and I will dissolve the fear of man. Yeah. And that's all it took. And, and then I no longer cared about the consequences. I love that when I'm able to just trust the Lord and not care about the consequences. And I mean, you know, I mean, consequences of doing the right thing. They're not always positive immediately, but it's nice to not be afraid of that and just say, Lord, I trust you. I fear you more than man. And so I'm going to do this because I want to please you. And, you know, I wish that that reluctance did not exist in my heart, but it's there. It's there. It proves that the absence of fear and the presence of faith are the product of long experience with God's faithfulness. So hopefully I'm not the only one in here that has plenty of room for growth. It doesn't change the reality, though. The fear of man is a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Proverbs 29, 25. So I would say do hard things for the Lord and you will experience his faithfulness. People that back down from doing hard things, I think they just miss out on God. They really do. Verse 7 through 8. David says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. You know, how many times did David face an enemy that the Lord did not crush? I mean, he did go to battle one time, and he was facing a giant. Um, and he, remember, he was old, and uh, he ran out of steam. And so the, the boys had to drag him out and kill the giant and so forth. And then they didn't let him go to war anymore. But the enemy was still crushed. So when it came to battle, uh, God always crushed his enemies. David did not know defeat in a military sense. So in looking back, when it came to war, military conflict, David, he always came out on top, all because he knew that God was with him, and he was. And so that's why David could declare salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, just as the battle belongs to the Lord, as David demonstrated with Goliath, salvation also belongs to God. The idea is that it is God who always secures the victory, and it's God who secures our life in conflict, always. And David was sure of this. And even though David had shortcomings as a man, as we know, he had shortcomings as a father and as a king, it did not change God, God's commitment regarding his promise to David. It didn't change anything, and David knew that. Just as Paul said, he says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. David understood that God remains faithful because, simply because of who he is, not because of what we do or what we do not do. God remains faithful even when we are not. Now, I, I think in, in, in the summation of all this, I think I've heard enough sermons in my life to know that it would be easy, and, and I think it is easy for Bible teachers and pastors to just tell people to trust the Lord so they can experience all these things. And it's true. God is all these things to his people. He is our shield. He is our courage. He hears our cry. He is our sleep aid. He's our sustainer. But these are all things that we typically come to realize through experience over time as we grow in faith and learn to trust him through the various trials of life. I think too often in our Christian faith, we forget that God is a person and He's related to like a person, not like any person, of course, but I don't think any of you trusted your spouse the day you met them. Is that true? Or were you that naive? You don't trust people immediately. 
It takes time, it takes history, it takes experience. It takes a history of faithfulness. And I think the same is with God. We can, like we said earlier, we can sing those songs. Um, we can repeat the Psalms. And, and I think that we should. But until we've been in the grind of life, we've experienced pain, we've experienced loss and trials and things like that, we're not going to really know for certain that God is all of those things. I think that as a newbie, faith will definitely sustain you through that. Because in faith, God will show himself faithful. But it takes time for people. You know, you look at the life of David, and when he was a shepherd boy, that really is the time that he learned that God was faithful. You remember when he went to Saul before he went out to Goliath, he said that your servant has faced both lion and bear. And he says, and that's what defines David, just as the Lord delivered me from the mouth of the lion and the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of Goliath. You see, David had experience with the Lord as a boy. He had been following him for some time. He knew of God's faithfulness. He knew of God's strength. And if he could take a lion by the beard and strike it to death, he could handle a, a Goliath. Amen? But it was through experience that, that all of that happened. And so we too, we must learn to trust the Lord where we currently are and with what we're facing. And that will prepare us for what's ahead. And as you grow in faith, it's true, you're going to experience more of God's faithfulness. As we step out in faith, we will find that God is trustworthy. And as we discover that he always stands by his promises, we, we can, without fear, stand on his promises. And then we can be assured, as David said, that his blessing is upon us. Amen? All right. Well, I don't know yet where we'll go next in the Psalms, but it will be a psalm. We'll see what happens. So let's go ahead and pray. If you would, please stand up. <clears throat> well, Lord, of course, we all love the stories of David, and we love how your faithfulness is mingled in with it, whether it's David's sin or David's victory, David being oppressed, whatever it is, we're thankful. And we're thankful, Lord, that you're always the hero and that, that David's hero is, is our hero. Same God, same person. Lord, we also thank you for your continued testimony of faithfulness in our own life and the lives of other people. And Lord, as David said, you know that we are but dust and we falter, we fail, we struggle. But I just pray, Lord, that like David, we would, we would come to our senses and we would remember that you are our shield. You are the, the one that gives us courage. And Lord, we can even sleep when times are very troubling. So Lord, teach us day by day, I pray, to walk by faith. And Lord, to encourage others in the faith. You are always faithful. Help us not to forget. So Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.